so lovely to see you all. Uh, my name is Sam, I'm fourth year at the university, I study maths. Um, and my favourite icebreaker question at the moment is what facts make you marvel at how big the world is and how small we as humans are? Um, I watched a lot of The Ashes and didn't like watching England back, so I read up a lot about Australia and discovered how vast it is as a place. Um, so if you're out in the pub and want to hear some rogue facts about Australia, or if you've been to Australia, then uh, yeah, that's my new favourite country at the moment. So um, that's, a, that's a little bit about me. Uh, we're not talking about Australia this evening, you'll be glad to hear. Um, we're, we're actually in Isaiah, as Jack mentioned, we're going to be looking at it for the next six weeks. We'll do a chapter a week and we'll hopefully cover it in some great depth. As Essence, we've done a lot of what's called thematic preaching over the last few uh, terms. So we've looked at different themes each week that fit into a series. And we thought it was really good to, to spend some time in one particular part of the Bible. That means we're going to do talks that look slightly different. When we preach on passages, we'll try and cover most of the verses in them. We'll cover a broad range of topics. And so it's a really exciting opportunity for us to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. What you get out of a passage will be probably very different to the person sat next to you. Different themes or ideas or challenges will pop out um, as we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the really exciting things that we hope to come out of this. We're keen to let passages speak for themselves. We'll probably do far more explaining than digging in to give an understanding of who it is that's speaking, what the context is, rather than really delving into some of the more nitty-gritty message parts. There may not even be some golden threads. Today we're just going to look verse after verse and see what comes out. So I apologise in advance if you're someone that likes something hammered home. Um, but if you're a note taker, I'd really encourage you to bring your notebooks to these next six weeks. Um, probably not worthwhile this evening, but definitely the next five weeks. Um, take lots of notes and, and really soak in what's spoken. So yeah, we're in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. He's a Jew. He uh, lives just before Israel go into exile. And he's prophesying about this fall of Israel and the exile that Babylon will bring on them. And we see that happen about 100 years after Isaiah. So we know that these prophecies come true. Chapters 1 to 39 predict that. And then chapters 40 onwards are all about how God will bring restoration. How God will bring Israel home and reconcile them and bring them out into glory. The style of writing in Isaiah is really strange. Firstly, because uh, the Hebrew language has a really strange way of doing tenses. They don't necessarily have the same present tense and future tense like we do, or first person and third person. And so often when we read it, it will be quite difficult to spot who's speaking or what tense they're speaking in, whether it's a prophecy, whether it's something, something that somebody will say or something that somebody has said and all those kind of, kind of bits. And there's also a nuance in how the book of Isaiah is put together. So Isaiah is a prophet. He's written a lot of this stuff down. Most of it was sealed up. And uh, his disciples, his followers, would have unraveled them at a later date and, and almost edited them and cut and pasted bits and put together. So we're reading Isaiah's words, but we're reading Isaiah's words through the lens of um, other people compiling them together. So I'm going to invite Kate up uh, to read the first part um, of this series, chapter 49. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up and read along with us. 
So Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken to me, my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands, and my, re my reward is with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb is to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of, those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. My salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favour, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and I and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to resign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will be free, they will be fed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on the, his afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget a baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she bore, has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back, and those who laid you, you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. Surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them on, on, as all ornaments. You will put them on like a bride, though you were ruined and made desolate, and your land laid waste. Now you will be too small for your people, and those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, This place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will, then you will say in your heart, Who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am Lord. I am the Lord. Those who hope in me 
will not be disappointed, can plunder be taken from warriors, or captives be rescued from the fierce. But this is what the Lord says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you, and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Saviour, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And of course, that was a very long passage. Um, yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, wow, what a, what a very long passage, first and foremost. Um, if you want to shake off and wriggle out some energy, I'm very fidgety, so by all means, um, shake yourself about if you'd like. Um, so this is the second of four servant songs that come in Isaiah. We'll read the last two later on in this series. And we use that term, servant song, to refer to the prophecies that point to this ambiguous servant. We know that it is Jesus, and theologians are universally agreed that it points to Jesus, but it's really vital that we acknowledge that we're not actually told that. It's explicit that it's not um, a recognisable person. It is an ambiguous servant that we read about. And it's important we know that because this mysterious servant doesn't just represent Jesus. One of the beautiful things about so much of Old Testament prophecy is that it's fulfilled in the short term and it's then ultimately fulfilled in the long term. So a lot of this opening, verses 1 through to 4, are all um, prophecies about Jeremiah in the short term and Jesus in the long term. If you go and open Jeremiah's letters, you can see a lot of this language spoken about him. We're not going to touch much on Jeremiah. If you want to go and read about that, there's an awful lot to be uh, to learn about it. We're going to focus more on Jesus. Um, but it's, as I said, it's important that we distinguish. It is Jesus, but it's not just Jesus. There's far more to it than that. So let's start at verse 1. Do, do open it up if you've got it with you. Listen to me, you islands. Who is this addressed to? It's addressed to the whole world. This is the Jewish holy book, and yet it's explicitly for everyone. This prophecy, 49 and the rest, is for the world to listen to, the distant lands and islands, to prick up their ears and hear what is being said. This servant is called out from before birth. Verse 2 is quite striking, isn't it? This servant is going to say some really sharp things. They liken it to getting arrows out of your uh, pouch on your back and shooting them. These are sharp words that are going to pierce people's hearts. They're going to pierce people's ears. The ears of the whole world, not just of Israel. You may have experienced reading the Bible and being deeply affected by it. If you're like me, quite often when you're reading your Bible, you'll kind of raise your eyebrows and go, oh, really? Do I have to? That doesn't seem to make sense. We kind of know deep down that it's the right thing to, to listen to it and to obey it, but it just doesn't quite sit right in our heads, does it? But that's what it's meant to be like, and that's what this prophecy of Isaiah is saying about the words that Jesus will speak in the Gospels. Jesus is speaking the truth. It won't be universally popular. It won't be what everybody likes. It will cut and it will leave an indentation. And that provides us with a really helpful test. 
If Jesus' words all sit really well with us, then potentially we're not truly listening to what he has to say. If his words aren't cutting us, if they don't influence the way that we're acting, the opinions we have on ethical and social issues, the way that we walk and go about our daily lives, then potentially we need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak those scriptures afresh to us. We're not going to find every single thing that Jesus says difficult. Um, Each of us will find different things more challenging than others. Some of us are naturally more generous or naturally more inclined um, to, to agree with some of the things Jesus says. But there may be one or two key areas where it's important that we let Jesus's words really strike into us and follow what he has to say. This mysterious servant will speak words that are decisive and we'll come on in a couple of verses to see the impact that that will have. But for now, let's look at verse three, shall we? This now describes the identity of the servant. You are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. That seems slightly strange, doesn't it? He's uh, talking about this servant who is now the nation who is now rescuing the nation. There's a lot of um, things that don't really make sense. But essentially what is going on is a representation of Jesus being Israel. Just as a foreign diplomat goes to a country and says, this is the United Kingdom's opinion, they're not actually saying that they've spoken to every person in the country and this is what we say. They are a representative of And that is what verse 3 is saying. This mysterious servant will encapsulate Israel. They will be Israel. They will come from Israel. Jesus is a representative of the people that God chose from the beginning of time. He encapsulates what it is to unite both Jew and Gentile. So that's who this servant is. But what about what they will be and what they will do? I wonder how you'd answer the following question. What was Jesus's mission? Why did Jesus come? Now, to some of you, that might seem easy. To some, it might seem difficult. And potentially, if we went around, some of the answers we'd get are maybe quotes from Jesus. You might go that he came to seek and to save the lost. You might talk about Jesus coming to bring about right relationship and to do what we were unable to do. But I wonder how you'd then go about this follow-up question, which is, why did Jesus have to walk around for three years in the desert and preaching in Bethlehem and Judea? Why didn't he just go straight to the cross? If his mission was to bring about right relationship and to do the things that were achieved on the cross, why did he need to do the first three years? And I think when we consider these kind of questions, suddenly we realise that while our answer is correct to the first bit, we haven't fully understood the whole picture, have we? I wonder if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. This is Jesus explaining very plainly and simply why he has come and why he is preaching, why he is doing miracles. What is it that Jesus says? Someone want to shout it out? I was sent only to the washing of Israel. Yeah. 
Jesus is sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In fact, that NIV translation, I am only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus' death and resurrection is for all. But his teaching and his preaching in the first instance is to bring about and to bring Israel home. That is what verse 5 talks about. This servant will bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. That is the fulfilment of this prophecy in Isaiah, that Jesus' first, uh, the, you know, the mission in the first instance is to Israel. Elsewhere we'll see other reasons and explanations, and there's other correct answers to that question of why Jesus came. But it's really important that we understand that the answer in this context, as we look at this passage, is particularly around that. And why is that important? Well, because suddenly it puts verse 4 in quite a stark context, doesn't it? We know Jesus' mission, and if we look at the cross, what we see is victory. We can see Jesus' highlights and go, oh wow, he healed people, he did miracles, he argued people off the park. But when we think about the mission and the context of Jesus bringing the lost sheep of Israel home, well, that was pretty much a failure, wasn't it? That's why he's so upset in the Garden of Gethsemane. He came to bring Israel home, and he could only do it on the cross. They wouldn't listen to him. The Pharisees failed to see that he was the Son of God. The Jews wouldn't listen to him. Jesus' mission in an earthly sense before the cross is essentially a failure, and that is what verse 4 predicts. That moment in Gethsemane. Isaiah says, that the servant will say, I have laboured in vain, I've spent all my strength, and it's been for nothing. How amazing is it that Jesus, the one who won the victory on the cross, knows what it's like to see failure and not to see breakthrough. Jesus is essentially crushed by the lack of an end result. If Jesus felt it was okay to be disappointed and upset, to be frustrated about not seeing God break through, then how much does that validate when we feel the same? When we're tired of living as a Christian in this world, when we understand the sadness and disappointment when we invite someone to church and they don't come. That's totally valid because Jesus has been through it too. His mission didn't work. The cross was not plan B and I'm not trying to imply that at all. God was always going to send Jesus to the cross. But Jesus' earthly mission to bring them home in the first instance failed, and that is what Isaiah said would happen. If you turn with me to John 6, you'll see an episode of Jesus seeing that pain. Those harsh words that we read about in verse 2, those sharp words of arrows that will be decisive in John 6, 67, do cause decisiveness, and they cause Jesus, some of Jesus' followers to walk away. Isaiah said that these words would be decisive, and they are. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me as well? These other people don't like what I'm saying, they're leaving. Are you going to desert me too? We're allowed to echo Jesus' sadness and to echo his frustration. If we ever feel like a failure, then Jesus knows it. He's walked through it. Yes, he won victory, but he's also seen the other side. And God responds to this in Isaiah 49 verse 5. 
This is God essentially responding to the prophecy about Jesus, about what Jesus will say. And God's answer is this beautiful not only moment. Not only will I prove you wrong, but I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm not just going to bring Israel home, the lost sheep. I'm going to open this up and bring an invitation for restoration for all. God is saying, just you wait. You think I can't do it. I'm going to do so much more. I'm not just going to bring them home. I'm going to bring everyone home. Where we see failure and where the world sees failure, God sees opportunity for victory. And that's the victory that's painted in verses 6 and 7. We think that he can't do it and he can do more than we could ever imagine. God restores Israel's relationship with him. Look at verse 6. I will make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He restores their purpose as well. God restores identity and he restores purpose. Our purpose as Christians today is to worship and to honour him, to make him known. And even when we go astray like Israel did, we can trust that he will restore us to our original purpose, just as he restored Israel to their original purpose. He will still use us to magnify his name. So in verse 6, we read of how he restores their relationship and he restores their purpose. And verse 7 gives us the final restoration that this servant will bring about, which is their authority. Kings and nations bow down, is what verse 7 says. Why? Not because of them or their power, but because God's favour is on them. They are his people. The creator of the universe is on their side. Not because of what they've done, but because they've accepted that God has restored relationship. And because they've accepted that God has restored their purpose. And when we accept that restoration, we're welcomed into his family. And we see the same blessing that Israel sees because we are part of their family. We accept restoration. We accept um, the restoration of relationship and of purpose. And we can step in, just as Israel did, into our blessing. That's time for a deep breath. We've done verses 1 to 7, and I'm sure you're sat there going, goodness, it's been 20 minutes and we're only a third of the way through. Um, I promise we'll go through the next two bits quicker, otherwise we won't leave this place this evening. Um, but isn't it wonderful to have such a dense piece of scripture? If you're looking for stuff to read in your quiet times, I really encourage you, go and take, you know, do a verse a day, do two verses a day. There's so much in here. Go and find things, you know, Google it, and there'll be so many things online to go and read. This is, it's like wading through treacle rather than running through uh, water. Cool. So the second part of this chapter is verse 8 to 13. We've had the description of the servant and the description of restoration, and now we're going to see the impact of that restoration. It's a beautiful painted picture here of barren lands that will swell with water. A God who looks after and provides. He makes rows that they walk flat and straight. This is a happy and a joyful picture. And then verse 13 concludes that this should cause us and all of the earth to burst into song, to celebrate, to sing, to rejoice. This is really, really good news, isn't it? 
But then we get this big interjection in verse 14. We've had restoration, we've had the impact of it, and then Israel answer. So this is um, Israel as a nation responding in verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Isaiah prophesies that Israel will not be totally happy. That they won't be able to see past their current situation, whatever that is. They'll be caught up with temporary hurt and pain. They won't be able to fix their eyes on the eternal picture of glory that is painted before. And I don't know about you, but that's something I can really relate to. I so often am fixated on what's directly in front of me rather than what's far in front of me. So often I think God has forgotten about me, just as Israel do. And the rest of the chapter, verse 15 to 27, is God's response to that. It's such a common question, isn't it? Has God forgotten me? You know, where is he? And God answers in such a tender way. This isn't an angry no, it's not a shouty no. It's almost a kind of hysterical no. It's a, you've got to be joking me. I can almost picture God kind of rolling his eyes if he had eyes. He's going, seriously? It's, It's almost such a preposterous idea, isn't it? The creator who knows the hairs on our head, who formed us in our womb. How could he possibly forget us? And he uses analogies uh, in the next couple of verses to explain that. How could a mother forget her child? And then in verse 19, God carries on with the description that uh, was before Israel kind of rudely interrupted, as it were. God carries on with this description of what flows from restoration. But this time he's focused on his new family. Before it was about what life will be like for his family, and now he's talking about expanding the family, bringing Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, into his family. These prophecies are two-pronged, as we've talked about before. This is both about children that are born in Babylon, in exile, and it's about children that are brought into his family post-Jesus. If you look at verses Uh, kind of 17 to the end it looks really strange there's lots of talk about children born in certain places and they complain and their parents respond and it's it's a really strange kind of section of this chapter but essentially what we're seeing is a two-pronged application children will be born when Israel are in exile they won't know what promised land is like but they will have such great expectation of what God can do that they know that this place of exile is too small for them. They know that there is so much more that God has planned for them. And in the same way for us, we know that there is so much more for us. We are expected to be expectant. Look at verses 18 with me. Lift your eyes and look around. All you children gather. Though you were ruined, verse 19, Now you will be too small for your people. The children born during bereavement will say, this place is too small for us. Give us more space. They will long to leave exile. They will long to move back to the promised land. 
Just as we should long to leave exile and long to move back into relationship with God. We are naturally born in exile from God. We're not born in the relationship we should have with him. But as the sovereign Lord says in verse 22, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the people. I will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. He will bring us home. It's this beautiful picture of a united family restored under the banner of God's love. And then in verse 21, these old cynical parents go, whose children are these? They're so optimistic, they're so expectant. The expectancy that we and the children born in exile are expected to have is one that is so great that our parents will go, these can't be my children. They're so full of joy and of expectancy in the same way that their children will grow in expectancy. Generation after generation, expectancy grows. They want to see God do amazing things because they know he will. Verses 22 to 24 are more amazing promises about the authority that we have as a result of this reunition, re, reunitedness, whatever the word is. <laughs> and then we have this amazing finale, verse 25 and 26. God will bring victory. We have victory in Christ. He has won. The battle is over and the Lamb has won. We know that victory is brought about through Jesus. We know that victory will be brought about in the future tense on the final day. This is an amazing picture of what life is like when we embrace what Jesus has done for us. When we understand the importance of family and community like Emmy was speaking about a couple of weeks back. This is what life is meant to be like, living with expectancy that God will do more than we see, that God can do more than we see. How amazing would it be if every generation of Christians grew in expectancy, knowing that God could be moving far more than he is, crying out to him in prayer and in worship to see more and to do more, and not just to lazily pray and ask for more, but to get on and do more. We should be praying as if it depends on God and acting as if it depends on us. God wants to see our hearts that are for him and for his kingdom. He wants us to come with expectant hearts that we will see more and more and more because he will do more and more and more. So that is a, a whistle-stop tour of this chapter. Uh, I think it's time for another deep breath. We've covered an awful lot in those 25 minutes or so. But ultimately, to wrap up, it was always God's plan to bring his son and to bring restoration. His son will speak difficult truths that not everyone likes. The consequences will be clear, but we can take heart that Jesus knows what it's like not to see breakthrough. We can be confident in God's greater plan. And we should be expectant of that greater plan. When we accept restoration of relationship and purpose, we will see the blessings that flow from that. 
Life as his children is one of celebration and of hope. And we should be expectant to see celebration and to see hope. So just before we get into groups to look at this passage a little bit, why don't we spend a little bit of time by ourselves thinking about where we need to be more expectant? What is it you want to see God doing? Where are the areas that you're, like verse 4 says, sad, lamenting because you're not seeing breakthrough but you're confident that it will happen? 